because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Welcome to Cows in the Field. This is a show in which we discuss philosophical themes in popular films. My name is Justin. I'm Laura. And today's episode is The Phantom Menace. And we are joined today by philosophical podcast impresario Matt Teichman. Matt is the host of Elucidations Podcast, one of the first philosophy podcasts. And he's a programming specialist at the University of Chicago Digital Library Development Center. Welcome to Cows in the Field, Matt. Misa, so happy you should be inviting me a decent <laughs> bombad podcast. Muy, muy. Coming in hot. Um, come- <laughs> I was not expecting that. Um, <laughs> We were just talking right before we started. So Elucidations, you've been going since 2008. Oh, can I mention actually one other thing for the bio? Sorry, I had to to do that, obviously. Uh, (laughs) um, I don't recall if you mentioned this, but I also uh, teach computer science in the master in the master's program here Hell yeah. uh, where uh, I get to uh, you know preach the gospel of my current obsession, functional programming and type theory. Awesome. Uh, You heard it here first, Matt, teaching computer (laughs) science. Uh, And (laughs) so, okay. Let me just, before we get into this, so you started the Elucidations in 2008? Yes. That's I wild. started recording uh, stuff in 2008, uh, and then I found that uh, philosophy professors were in general too chicken to come on my podcast, so I had to wait until 2009 to start releasing them. But once I had banked a couple, I always go, I always follow this methodology where I like have a, a bunch in the can that I'm editing so that, and the original purpose was so that I could release them at a relatively predictable rate uh, because you know what it's like. You know what like interacting with faculty is like, no offense, but you know, people <laughs> flake on you. It's like online dating. So in order to be able to actually release stuff regularly, I found, because uh, people would cluster up and when they could do it, uh, that this like record in advance thing worked for me. Yeah. So started recording in 2008, uh, uh, debuted in 2008. I mean, that's completely wild. I feel like that you are so ahead of yeah. where the media landscape was going. Um, but congratulations, and it's still going, right? You're still releasing episodes. Absolutely. Yeah. I uh, intend to do the podcast forever, including after death. Awesome. It, well, you know, with AI, you never know. It could just go on forever. Upload your consciousness yeah. and keep um, podcasting. All right. I mean, I have, I still have some time to figure out exactly how to do that logistically. So Yeah, that's right. That's right. Absolutely. Thinking, yeah. The wheels are spinning. Yeah. Um, okay, so today we're talking about The Phantom Menace, and... I was so excited when we were talking about what movie to do when you suggested The Phantom Menace because... <laughs> oh my God, I'm so excited that you're so excited because like people are usually not excited about this movie. <laughs> That's partly why I'm excited. Is I think it's a really, really <laughs> interesting movie to discuss partly because, I mean, we I need to get into this, the critical and cultural you know, ebb and flow on this movie I think has been actually quite remarkable and really interesting and reflective of a lot of... Uh, aspects of popular culture that I think are intriguing to me. But I want to start, so Matt, what was your history with this film? I assume you saw it in theaters, but tell me about like how your relationship to the film has grown or changed over time. Okay, well, um, 
my uh, main, I have like too many interests. I'm a serial, too many interest person, PhD. Uh, I started a PhD in film studies, did a PhD in philosophy, studied computer science, linguistics undergrad, linguistics re- related dissertation, blah, 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 blah. And uh, that got going when I was young. Uh, so what I was really into in high school is computer animation. And I sort of was thinking I was going to do that for a living. Uh, so I was yeah really focused on all the great things happening in 3D animation, especially in the 90s. Uh, and Lucas was absolutely a part of that. Star Wars movies were some of my favorite movies. Um, and um, I think it's very difficult for people coming at The Phantom Menace now to understand the level of excitement there was behind this movie for fans of Lucas's whole deal. Um, and I guess what I want to say about Lucas is that I related to the movies, you know, not just sort of as a fan, which I obviously do, but, you know, as someone who is intending to make things like this, uh, who's intending to express himself creatively in the way that uh, Lucas did. And I think Lucas has always had one of the most unique ways of expressing himself creatively. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think there was more of a buildup to this movie than like almost any other movie I can think of in terms of, you know, fan anticipation. Yeah, let's... Uh, that may be one of the reasons it fell so hard. Yes, let's dwell on that a little bit because... Uh, so, did you camp out before the movie? No, that I don't really do that. Okay. Um, I find it much easier to just go a week late. I can wait. That I've waited this long. I can wait another week. That's so right. That's yeah, that, I think I was the same. But I mean, I remember <laughs> it was national news that people were camped mm-hmm. out for yes. weeks. I think before the like movie, more more than a day. Yeah, 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 yeah. it went on and, uh, and just... in like rain. You know, like it was wild. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you could, they yeah. didn't pre-sell tickets, like, or were they no. like, okay, is, there's no like buy well, your seat. Well, there's movie phone in 1999. Uh, you can call and get a but ticket. Not for the not movie like phone this. would, as I recall, movie phone at that time would just tell you when the movie was. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's actually no, you're totally right. I'm sorry, I was 11 at the time, so I was like, yeah, I, I was. <laughs> no, <laughs> okay, so, so I'm I, like, I what in, do you need? Um, you have to sit around and wait for a ticket. Came out, and so okay, so. Here's the next question. How many times did you see it in theaters? Oh, you know, I only saw it once in the theater. Oh. So um, my journey with this movie has been one of having, you know, liking it, but having mixed feelings about it immediately upon seeing it. I didn't watch it again for quite a while, five or six years, probably. Um, and I've watched it um, 14 or 15 million times since then. And each time I watch it, it just gets better. Yeah. Uh, so it's an unusual movie for me in this um, in this regard. Um I think I felt ambivalent about it uh, when it was released in the same way that a lot of fans did. I didn't completely hate it yeah. uh, in the way that some fans did, but I felt ambivalent about it. And um, 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 I, it, it, it's had this weird effect where every time I watch it, I get more and more desensitized to like the parts that are like really dumb. Um, and they just sort of like feel normal to me. And uh, it, and and the uh, the parts of it that are great are thrown further and further into relief. Uh, I can't wait to get into this. Um, just as a <laughs> just like to go through, you know, our own histories. So I saw it, I believe, four or maybe five times in theaters. I mean, this was a monumental event for me. I was I was 15 and mm. I was in the this was the height of my Star Wars fandom. It actually went mm. downhill after this, like because of, you know, mm. like part, many people. <laughs> yeah. Part of because of this movies and also because I was just getting older. But, you know, I, by the time the third yeah. one comes out, I think I was in college and I, I just was like, ah, this is, you know, I was over it in some sense. But this, Can I ask what your favorite of the original trilogy was going into this movie. 
Okay, we we are going to get into this, Matt. The ori- okay, we're we going yes, we, uh, to do this. I'm going to put the I want to put the I want to put like the where we stand on both original trilogy, prequel trilogy and sequel trilogy. I want to put that on ice okay. just cuz they're going to be some spicy takes <laughs> thrown around. Um I but, think I have pretty boring opinions about that too, about all three of those. Oh, so. fair enough, but I think the fact that you yeah. love Phantom Menace, right? Spoiler oh. alert. I think that's oh. already a spicy take, which I think is great. Um, but I saw this four times, five times, whatever, and I was similarly mixed. But the thing is, is I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to dislike it because there were the highs were so high. We're gonna talk about some of these highs, and I kept going back for those highs, and then leaving the theater feeling like, like kind of gross because the lows <laughs> I was really, I was like, this kind of sucks, but I couldn't. I couldn't admit it, you know. So yeah. there was that ambivalence in me that I had to fight, and by the second movie. And the third movie, I was, I like, it It kind of really cemented that I hated these movies. Um, but then, like yourself, Matt, I think when I come back to them, and really it was in light of the, the sequel trilogy. So eight, whatever, uh, sorry, seven, eight, nine. And thinking about, especially seven, when seven came out, Force Awakens, you know, I think a lot of us, we all went back and rewatched, right? We went back to go through these. And you know, going back through before that, I was like, eh, yeah, this prequel trilogy. But then after seeing it and seeing what it was doing and how kind of easily it was giving us the nostalgia thing that everybody claimed they wanted, including me, and then comparing that to a movie like this, which felt like something totally new, within totally within the Star Wars universe, but something new and something really exciting. It was that relief, I think, that helped me come to grow to like this film more. But it took uh, a long I'm time. I'm so happy to hear that, yes. Yeah, I mean, I really think um, The Phantom Menace is the movie that uh, has the great, or uh, is the movie slash TV, slash TV show slash whatever that has the greatest claim to being of a piece with the original trilogy uh, uh, compared to any other subsequent Star Wars product. Yeah. Um, um, it's very much, I think it's, uh, it's, um, uh, so clearly a movie by the same person behind the original trilogy and it's doing so, so much new stuff yeah. as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he's really going to town on all the little things, he, all the types of things he wished he'd done in the, in the original trilogy he never had a chance to do, plus a bunch of new stuff that's been sort of like simmering in his mind for whatever it is, it's been 15 years. Um, uh, it's this, yeah, it's this perfect combination of this really, you know, this really feels like one of these, you know, movies which are one of the most unique kind of cultural touchstones of our generation. It feels like a new one of those, and it's also doing all this stuff we haven't seen before. Totally, yeah. You know, um, so it's, I think it's a great cocktail of that kind. Okay, so you were a CG nerd in the '90s. I mean, this is something you wanted yes. to do. So tell me what it was like seeing. So Jar Jar Binks, I believe, is the first fully realized CG humanoid character interacting with uh, like you know real people is that is that right I believe that's right yeah, yeah. I think um all the other CG humanoids in movies that I know of um are essentially effects but yeah. they're not like uh, main characters they're not like interacting and having mm. lines yeah. and stuff they're not cracking jokes they're not you know they don't have hopes and dreams and fears that they express to the characters yeah. uh they don't um make crucial moves that move the story forward you know except for scaring people or whatever you know so it's mm-hmm. it's yeah he, i think he is the first it's quite remarkable genre so tell me what it was and like it's for the whole movie it's not yes. just for like one scene yeah usually other right characters are just in for one scene I mean, what was it like for you as a as like a young, you know, uh, budding 
CGI, you know, artist person. Did what was it like seeing seeing that? Right. Um, it was it was it was pretty overwhelming uh, in a good way. So the Phantom Menace is, is the last of the prequels that's shot on film. Yep. Um, at that time, uh, I was transitioning from uh, being a action movie freak slash three uh, D computer animator wannabe to being like a major snob, and we can like talk about that whole transition. So I was in mid transition when this movie came out. So I was starting to uh, really like um, geek out over like different film stocks and like grain and like color processes and you know and black and white negative reversal blah 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 all your lenses all that stuff. Uh, and but I also had retained my previous geekery around animation of all kinds, especially three uh, computer animation. Um, uh, I think one thing that's incredible about this movie from an animation perspective that I'd never seen before and I've almost kind of never seen since is a lot of the CG effects integrate really well with the look and feel of the film stock. Um, there's uh, kind of more um, um, high octane direct sunlight in this movie than I think any other Star Wars movie. Uh, so much of it is on Tatooine. And there's this look that you get from full sunlight that's sh- that's shot really well uh, w- that make the colors look uh, vivid but almost kind of like monochrome, like these old processes they had, uh, you know, like, like three-strip Technicolor or Kodachrome where you're making um, color images out of three black and white uh, kind of image channels. Um, and uh, the um, I, I still – every time I watch the movie, I'm kind of blown away by um, – so like to, to give you an example of this um, – the battle scene um, where uh, the, uh, the droids fight the Gungans, um, the uh, just the way that the uh, the sunlight hits the uh, the droids uh, head helmet thingies um, um, is um, it's like it's very filmy, but it's CG. Um, and that's like it, it's a really unique look and feel. I haven't I can't even really think of another movie where I've seen that. Uh, where they just fit into all the like weird color distortion stuff happening in the lens, but but a, a CG element is is fit into that. Um, so that is what I find really extraordinary. There's also a lot of little details in the droids, the way they move around. So this is the first movie I'd ever seen a mechanical uh, a robot, a computer animated robot in a movie where uh, the, it, it's clearly uh, a mechanism, and the mechanism is messing up. So they like they little twitch and like they get stuck. And like, uh, and their heads kind of bobble around, and the antennas kind of bobble around. All these little, all these little details of the way actual mechanisms and machines and stuff like that actually move are in the animation. Um, that was absolutely incredible. Um, and just the sheer volume of computer-generated elements. Um, I, I mean, it certainly felt pretty unprecedented. Um, but there was also a trade-off there, which is that there was so much computer animation in this movie. They didn't uh, really have time to get every last little detail of every single shot with Jar Jar perfect. So, um, um, and they're also dealing with the fact that he's an actual character, and like, how do we even do that? Um, so, uh, the shots, especially with Jar Jar, are pretty uneven. Sometimes he just looks like some like cartoon character. Like, what's he even? What's what's this cartoon character even doing in a live action movie? Sometimes he is well integrated into the environment, and he looks, you know, kind of almost photographic. Um, so on the whole, I found the CG and I still find the CG to be, uh, really striking, especially in the use of these like kind of brash Kodachromy blue, red, uh, 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 kind of sand blasted colors. Um, uh, and the, and the, and the movements of the movements of the, especially the battle droids, uh, I think are, I think are stunning. Uh, the characters I think are comparatively weak, both because it's hard to animate a living character and because there's so damn many of them, how are they even supposed to? Do it. You know, if it's Jurassic Park and the dinosaurs in the scene for two seconds, it's much easier to put all your energy into those two seconds. But they just had so much to do here. 
Um, and you see that actually a lot in uh, for, uh, blockbusters that came out around this time. Like Lord of the Rings, I think, is a classic example. You know, uh, Weta is a fantastic special effects company, but they had so much on their hands. Uh, they, I, you know, at least in my opinion, the, the effects in Lord of the Rings didn't live up to work by, uh, previous movies that that, um, that company had worked on. Um, so, yeah, overall, I think it was a win, but but there was certainly uh, not everything was perfect. And like most of the yeah, most of the scenes with the Gungans were like kind of dopey looking. Yeah, I mean, that that battle is I feel looks a little rushed in terms of the animation, mm-hmm. just like they made it if they had time to do a couple more passes. But you know, the guy who looks, yeah. in my opinion, the best is a Watto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Watto looks great. Watto I think Sabobo looks, looks great too. Sabobo looks, Sabobo looks really good too. Looks, yeah. 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 He's, he's in the yeah. shade a lot, which helps, I think. Um, and, and the other thing I was going to say, actually, just uh, we're, we're, we should do a, a serious uh, sidebar on this, but the, I think the pod race scene, to me, is the highlight of the film. And the CG in that is incredible. That's like, a hot take. I the, the CG in the in the pod race looks good. Oh, just that the pod oh, race no, is the, the, the best. The pod part. race is the highlight of the movie. I I, I, I think the pod race really for me is the highlight. I'll, I'll defend it if you want to get into it now. But but I really think the um the CG in it is 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 actually that's where it's it's best. And one explanation I have for this is that it's comparatively easier I think to do a fully CG render to make that like look believable to us than it is to have a single CG character around a bunch of real stuff. That's mm-hmm. really hard to do because you have that real thing there. You have Liam Neeson standing there and you're like, that guy is real. And then you see Jar Jar next to him and you're like, he looks... <laughs> yeah. Or Boss Nass. Or Boss Nass. Yeah. Boss Nass looks terrible. <laughs> but but yeah. but the, but once you go to the pod race... Everything is 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 you know is fake or you know except for they when they do the close up right. insert shots. Yeah, my understanding is that um, well, there's like photographic elements here and there. They introduce Aura Singh, which is like a crazy twist if you're a Star Wars fan. But um, uh, lots of, there's photographic elements here and there, yeah. and um, you know sort of cutaways. Yeah, in the inserts in the stuff, pod yeah. race, but in most of the actual zooming through stuff part of the pod race, my understanding is that that it's fully computer animated. Yeah. And it looks. Um, I think they even actually used different software for that, but I may be misremembering. Okay, yeah, I think it looks amazing, and and so here's here's one reason why I think that is that scene is is just incredible. Um, I went back and looked at how long the scene is. It's it's not even ten minutes long. And but it really does in that ten minutes. It's like a fully realized short film. There's like a, there's like you know um, tension, release, climax. You know, it's like a full movie right there in that tiny little moment. And the other thing that's just incredible about it is, you know, he 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 does this thing where he sort of like takes you that first you know the first ride through the the thing you kind of get a sense a layout a little bit of the of the race mm-hmm. so then when the second two tracks you kind of know right. what's coming so you're like what's he gonna do when he gets to this part of the track exactly mm-hmm. you like he's training is... you how to watch it this is like a james cameron move where like he trains you how to watch the action and um i think it's probably influenced by video games as well because this is often the way that racing uh computer and arcade games are set up where they Get you used to the track during the first lap, and yeah. then and then right. and then it's then it's boogie time during the second. Yeah, lap. then crazy stuff happens. The other thing about it is the sound design is insanely good. Th- that's one thing where this movie, every aspect of the sound design holds up completely. Like if you just turn off the visual and put this, just put on the this you you know put on the 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 movie, um, you you would be hard pressed to know whether it's come out in 1999 
or literally yesterday. I mean, it's so good. It sounds so crisp. And and you know, the Star Wars always known for amazing sound design. So many iconic sounds in Star Wars, and yet he introduces more. And in the Padre scene, one of you know, there's so many interesting sounds coming from all the different engines little of these gizmos pods. on the different pods and it's yeah so yeah. cool and the different types of pod uh different types of pods are interesting i as well. love that yeah Yeah, like the so the, the politics of Sebulba's massive uh, hot rod pod versus uh, you know Anakin's uh, you know uh, 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 tight and fast little underdog pod and so forth. I love that stuff. And then they have different numbers of engines in them too. Yeah, and that, that, that leads to different things happening. Yeah. I also love how like they're they're like the way it works is the engines are in front and they pull they this pull little them. this yeah. little, yeah. This yeah, little yeah, yeah, yeah. chariot basically they're like chariot that's mean, another example of something that's really quintessentially Star Wars is like these weird mechanisms that you wouldn't have thought of but like once you see how they work in the movie they actually really kind of make uh, intuitive physical it's sense. Super cool. But well, like on paper, it's like, what is that? Like engines that pull the what? I know. As I was saying this, I was thinking, oh my God, of course. He's doing Ben Hur. It's right. Ben Hur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole mm -hmm. thing. And I hadn't thought about that before, but yeah, of course. It's their chariot racing and in like ancient Rome. Like, I mean, and and that's what he's evoking with Tatooine is this sort of like, you know, it's sun blasted Rome. Um and anyway. But sorry, pod racing, amazing. Matt, I mean, where do you stand on the pod race? Uh, I categorize the pod race as one of the t movie's two flaws. I mean, there are lots of great things about it. Um, but, um, and uh, so, I, yeah, I'd actually be curious to hear whether you, uh, oh, I, yeah, it sounds like you might disagree with this. I, I'd be interested to talk about it. Um, uh, this is one of the few places where I actually agree with the, fan, the haters. Um, and, um, uh, so one of the classic criticisms of the movie is that the pod race goes on forever. Um, and, um, kind of like disproportionately to every other scene in the movie. Um, all the things you mentioned, I think, uh, are kind of a microcosm of other things happening in the movie. For example, okay, for this scene, we'll introduce 20 new characters with very elaborate backstories <laughs> and they're going to like do lots of complicated things really quickly, like 10 of them per minute. And you're not going to be able to f follow what's happening unless you watch the movie 50 times. Um, and the whole movie is like that. And every every scene, there's like 20 new characters. Um, uh, and so, the, you know, the pod race is very much in that style. And I think that aspect of it is done really well. Uh, uh, but I think I think the pacing is a little bit off. Um, so, like, I feel like the narrative events of the pod race um, could easily have been condensed into, I don't know, minute and a half, two minutes, something like that. I don't know. We can, you know, we can kind of hash out what's crucial behind the pod race. But, like, what's crucial behind the pod race? Um, nothing. Um, it, we have yeah. I actually think <laughs> nothing. That's actually why I kind of like it. Like, all we need to know is that Anakin's really good at racing. And then he wins. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. But mm -hmm. I think that but um, that's kind of why I like it. I like that it's totally inessential to the plot. I actually think, Matt, tell me, I don't want to like sidebars, but but like on a sidebar, but like, I actually think this movie in some ways is kind of inessential to the whole arc of the Star Wars story. There's a there's a there's like some reasons for this. I mean, partly because the character of Anakin in this movie is very different from the Anakin of the next two movies, who's very different, obviously, yes. from Darth Vader. And there's not really much of a transition between this movie and the next movie in terms of how Anakin is. So you could really, if it's just if this is supposed to be Anakin's story, 
you could cut this movie out completely and just have the other two and narratively you get everything you need. I think that's to the movie's credit, though, that we go f- way further back than we need to go. We have an Anakin who's like totally weird. It doesn't make any sense in some sense in the structure of the of the narrative. And it's just to me, it feels really like a, this, this like a, what do they call the space serials, these space opera serials where it's just like. This is just some stuff that's happening in the world. And like, we're getting, you know, it's like we're laying the groundwork for some stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Palpatine, blah, blah, blah. But that could have all been, you know, today, this would have been like a comic book that's that like kickstarts you for the actual episode one, right? The, they do this now where they have like a comic book that like, like James Cameron did this with Avatar 2. He's like, instead of shooting all this stuff, the 10 years in between, I'll just give you a comic book and then we just kind of skip ahead. And I think like, I'm kind of glad he didn't do that. I mean, I think at the time I was like, no, this, I, like, or whatever, t- 10 years ago, I would have said, yeah, this movie's t- totally inessential. Screw it. But now I'm like, I kind of love how ridiculous and inessential it is. Anyway, sorry. Interesting. Well, uh, I, 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 I wouldn't say my experience of this movie is that it's inessential to the advancement of the plot um, or in advance, inessential to the advancement of the, of the uh, whatever, grand the narrative. Grand narrative, yeah. Um, but I guess, I, well, let me try to make the case for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so um, I think the Anakin character uh, is supposed to start off heroic um, and then he is supposed to fall and turn to the dark side. Uh, and he's clearly pretty turned by part three. Um, and uh, they just had a weird uh, calibration error kind of uh, in the in the in the uh, directing, I think, in the second movie where he's already like full on evil. He's like full on stalker. Yeah. When the second he sees Padme in the second movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and they, they were, they were, they were, I think the idea was to save that for the third movie. Hmm. Um, but like things got weird with Hayden Christensen. Um, but anyway, according to the narrative uh, arc of Anakin, uh, he's supposed to start off heroic um, and um, and uh, become evil still by a very sympathetic for sympathetic reasons. Yep. Uh, he's you know, he, uh, he, he's worried about his mom. This horrible things happens to his mom. Then he's worried something similar is going to happen to Padme. He's stressed out anyway because his marriage to Padme is, uh, you know, um, a secret, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, sticking to the Phantom Menace. Yeah. This is the one movie where Anakin really gets to be a hero and he's absolutely the hero. He he um, um, uh, wins the race, allowing uh, Padme to escape back to the Senate. Uh, which is uh, crucial to their uh, winning the Battle of Naboo. Uh, he also basically wins the Battle of Naboo by blowing up the droid um, uh, ship. He and there's very few, as you mentioned, there's like very few traces of his dark future uh, in in the movie. Um, so t- yeah, to me, it's like a really nice um, setup for that arc. It's just that in the second movie, it's like yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the middle of the arc is missing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but they, I mean, they do anticipate in a couple ways. There's lots of conversations, you know, with um, with the Jedi Council, where um, yeah. you know, they talk a lot about his fear uh, and uh, and and how the uh, you know, the, there's a cloud. Uh, his future is clouded. Uh, he's afraid. Um, and uh, uh, by the way, I don't know. You know, um, um, I think this whole picture of um, uh, uh, fear of losing things that can be destroyed is uh, interestingly very close to uh, Augustine's explanation of where evil comes from and on free choice of the will. Uh, I feel like Yoda is basically just taking taking notes from that. Um, which uh, how often do you see? Yeah, like people even talk about that in the movie. Um, That's uh, awesome. Yeah, one of the great yeah it's another, one of the great things happening in all these movies is like the characters are discussing these like primordial. You know, uh, moral philosophy issues a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, that's not to say discussion is necessarily coherent at all, but <laughs> um, but the way the the way the story kind of lays them out, I think, is um, 
Uh, it's it, you know it's it's engaging uh, if that's if that's a way you want to think about it. Yeah, totally. Can I just ask for yeah. from a non-philosopher, what is the Augustine? What 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 is that? <laughs> oh would, yeah, would you like me to give my little spiel? Yeah, about give us yes, that? please. <laughs> yeah. So the basic thought is. Um, uh, and by the way, uh, so Augustine is one of my favorite philosophers, but he's one of those favorite philosophers of mine who I think is deeply wrong and his probably moral philosophy is probably pretty evil. But anyway, I think he's a brilliant philosopher and is it, well worth reading, absolutely fascinating, problematic in many ways, but but amazing. So the picture is like um, um, you shouldn't get attached to anything mm. in the world. Don't let yourself get attached to anything you are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat around a corner. Because um, uh, stuff in the world uh, is subject to the corrosive effects of time, and you know, people are going to age and die. Uh, if it's a physical thing, uh, it can easily get destroyed, eroded away. Um, and um, the minute you get attached to anything in the sort of physical world, um, you immediately start to fear that you will lose it. Um, and then the fear that you would lose the thing that you're attached to drives you to do crazy things to try to save it. Um, um, and so this is sort of uh, Augustine's explanation, uh, at least in that book. Uh, for uh, for evil behavior, it's, it's it stems from getting growing too attached to um, what at least what we talk about as worldly things, things in the things mm-hmm. in the physical world. You should you know you what you really should become attached to is the eternal, unchangeable things, ab- you know, abstractions that philosophers like to comp- contemplate. Okay, and like Yoda, pretty much that's pretty much what he you know yeah that's, that's, that's the Jedi code. The Jedi Although I guess like what are you supposed to be attached to? Bureaucracy. Like the rules of the council. Oh, snap. How did Palpatine get in here? It's back about the Republic. Oi, are you his new apprentice? I'll never tell. I'm like hiding a double lightsaber behind me. me. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, that's That's a good call, though. Yeah, I mean, I do think like the Jedi philosophy... That's exactly what it is, and that's exactly what, in the course of the three movies, Anakin ends up rebelling against because he becomes attached both to his mother and I mean, he's attached to her right. from the beginning, but to Padme in particular. And, I mean, if you think about it from a certain point of view, it's insane to be like, why are you worried about your mother? Psh, what's with these trifles? Like, <laughs> it is, you know. No, I mean, I, I agree. I think, I think yeah. the other thing that this, that the prequel trilogy does that I think people, I think, did pick up on but in a in a kind of subconscious way was that it makes the jedi out to be douchebag arrogant assholes yeah. and i think yeah, yeah. that's the thing that it, it's but it's subtle enough that like you're not it's not like pointing to them and being like look at these jerks but it, be- absolutely i think the way all the prequels do that is brilliant yeah. the sort of like subtle politics of you know the faculty committee of Jedi Council. You know, <laughs> I'm sure you can see yes. a lot of parallels to the academic world, right? Yes. Um, and yep. it's like you know, every every everyone is like really like morally onto something good in certain ways, and they're morally off in subtle other ways. And then it kind of compounds when they get together. Uh, sometimes the good compounds, sometimes the bad compounds, in this really complicated, messy, unpredictable way where there are no we, nobody's clearly like the hero or the villain. Um, uh, but right. Yeah. Like, um, jointly, they, um, really do some very harmful things. Um, and, uh, but yeah, every, every Jedi is sort of like morally an individual. Um, and, uh, they make different kinds of mistakes and they get different kinds of things. Right. Yeah. I like that. And, and I think also the film sort of sets up that the Jedi, their primary vice or flaw is, is, is sort of arrogance, right? Like that, that they, 
that they sort of yeah Yoda talks about this in the Phantom Menace right they've become yeah. complacent with their own sort of power I mean I and in some sense it's understandable I mean the 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 Republic has been going on for thousands of years largely without any problems like the Sith and no been, Sith that whole time exactly yeah their primary enemy was gone their united galaxy i mean this is this is like the end of history writ large so understandably they would feel pretty confident uh and yet and yet i believe uh kind of an interesting point for fans is that this is the movie that introduced the notion of the sith um uh, like that whole terminology of their yeah and the and the rule of two uh etc etc there must only be two sith master and apprentice blah 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 uh so the yeah fr- like a, a lot of um a lot of backstory lore um to do with like where Darth Vader and the Emperor and stuff came from was introduced in this movie, fleshed out more in the other two. Yeah, I think it's great. I think that's where that stuff, and I think also the politicking. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. So, I this movie is here's here's another hypothesis about why this movie does not work for a lot of people. It's that it's two movies that are totally incongruous, smashed together in a way that doesn't satisfy other each each you know thing you know each what each is trying to do so on the one hand it's a kids movie with pod racing and lightsaber battles and all that jar jar binks bonking himself yeah exactly (laughs) jar jar binks like getting into scrapes with saboba exactly stuff (laughs) you know he's what is he um electrocuting his tongue um (laughs) yeah yeah and making his tongue numb within the beams of the pod yeah Yeah, exactly so okay it's that but then on the other hand it's like this, and the, the the later two become even more bogged down in this. But it's right. the ascendant. The story of the galaxy's descended to totalitarianism. I know it's ascendant really fascism, dark, right? yeah. like but, but the, like via trade, yeah, via trade bureaucracy. Yeah, yes, <laughs> and the banking like, clan, which does not appear in this movie, but you know, but it makes sense when they do appear in the in the second movie. Yeah, you're just like okay, so now we're gonna. It's like it's gonna be about like tax policy. It's gonna take down this country, <laughs> exactly. You know this this mm-hmm. federation. Yeah. But like I think. You know, and, and to a certain extent, I mean, I think how can you not admire George Lucas for such a bold and wild swing? Because absolutely, he, and and that's what he did in the original trilogy too. Yeah, the Ewoks are a bunch of Sesame Street characters essentially integrated into this. Um, you know, let's have a revolution against a fascist regime narrative. Um, and, I mean, R two D two is also kind of like a, a kids show character because he doesn't talk, and which you know, which kids that can't talk yet maybe can kind of relate to, or learning to talk can kind of relate to, uh, and all this, all the all the language games, not in the Wittgenstein sense, all the games with language that he plays in the original trilogy, where like a character will say something incom- incomprehensible, and another character will reply understanding them, and all the humor that arises from yeah. that. Uh, it's all very, it's all very kid-like, but it's also enjoyable for adults. So I feel like, you know, it's uh, you sort of trying to hit all the notes that uh, were that were hit kind of perfectly in terms of balancing those two right. audiences in the original. In children. the original, but then in this, it's like they're yeah. incongruous because they I came think all too far, the kiddie apart. stuff in this is maybe a little bit too much, and then yeah. maybe some of that is the casting. We're gonna talk a little bit about Jake Lloyd, who like you know, you be nice to Jake. The situation with Jake Lloyd obviously is. A horrible one but the and then but then also the bureaucracy stuff is almost a little it's just too complicated like senate parliamentary senate procedure this, this is too co- that's way more complex than we needed like in in the new hope there's some discussion of yeah. the senate 
right? He says, like, the em- he's dissolved the Senate. It's in the background. Yes. You can just ignore that. Right. But in this, it's Talking front and center. In, yeah, yeah. It's like right happening right before our eyes. And you're just like, okay, now I'm watching, like, somebody call for a vote of no confidence. <laughs> what, oh, oh, yeah, right. No confidence. What kid is curious about this? Yeah. Anyway. But and, and, me, but I, I, I love the, it. Um, I think the original trilogy was, in many respects, kind of like that. If you look at the opening crawl to Star Wars. Um, and I mean, it's hard to imagine because most of us have like seen these movies like a, a bit. Yeah. But yeah, just imagine walking in, watching that crawl, and be like, "Princess, who? What? It's in the past, but they have spaceships and what? And the battle plans in the droid? What's a droid exactly? And why? Who's the guy trying? To, why are they landing on this desert planet? I think a lot of it is like pretty disorienting and kind of you know storyline wise, yeah. similar way to the Phantom Menace. Uh, maybe the Phantom Menace does it all like on a bit more steroids. Uh, than um, you know, than than a new hope, but yeah, it's just um, that it's it's just that like the machinations of the plot are more complex. I mean, the thing with what yes, Palpatine is yeah. trying to do, where he's playing both sides. I remember being like, I know that's Palpatine and that's Sidious. They're the same guy. I know all that. But at the same time, I was right. 15 and I was still like... And in case you forgot, the camera pans over him at the end and be like, who's the other Sith? I know. And then it pans right over Totally. Him, right? <laughs> but, but I'm also like, I'm also like, how, what's this guy's plan? Like, it's confusing at the same time because yes. you're like, he's both the senator for Naboo and he's working with the Trade Federation to like destroy yes. Naboo. And you're like... Wait, what's this end game? You know, and of course you see it yeah. as it plays out, but, but like I think as like a if you're ten years old, I think easily you could just be completely confused by all this. Or bored. Or bored. I talked to a nine year old the other day. I told him I was gonna watch this movie and he's like, I've seen all the Star Wars movies, all nine. And I was like, Oh, cool, I'm gonna watch Phantom Nest tonight. And he was like, That one is not my favorite. It's boring. <laughs> He just said it like it was like the most obvious thing in the world, but he's like, that one's real boring. Yeah, so I mean, fair. and I think I just was like confounded when I saw it. I saw it when I was 11 and I remember I didn't, yeah. I forgot all of it. I just remembered the kid stuff, basically. Yeah. I remembered the pod race and I remembered Anakin and I remember Jar Jar. Like, the thing for me when I was a little kid, five and six, or I think I might have been seven when I first watched any Star Wars movie, um, I had no clue what was going on plot wise. But you kind of don't care when you're seven, or yeah. at least I didn't really care when I was seven. I was like, all right, that dude with the pink sword's a bad guy. That dude with the, the blue sword's the good guy. I can tell that. And he, one person's running after the other person, and it's pretty fun, and there's a spaceship, and okay, cool. And that's like, whatever. I'm not too demanding of you as yeah. a seven-year-old. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's interesting to think about, um, like, what is the difference between a movie where um, – all the Byzantine sci-fi, political, societal, religious cruft uh, doesn't distract a child versus a movie where it does. Yeah, I, and, and to some extent, I think that you can just watch this film ignoring all that, as you did, Laura. And I think it works, de- you know, decently fine. I, I think, to me, I think it's a massive. I think it's a, a, a all to the good for the movie because it makes the movie seem weirder. And more out of place, yes. especially in today's world where this kind of movie would not get made today because people would be like, one, Jar Jar Binks, that character is offensive and does nothing and sucks. Get that character out of here. We're going to, we should talk about Jar Jar right now. But like, and then two, they'd be like, this is too complicated. <laughs> you know, like what? Just streamline all this stuff. And I love that it's messy. I love that it's like shaggy and messy and nonetheless still an adventure story. And of the three prequels, 
this is my favorite of them, partly because it's just like a clear adventure story. It's just a very simplistic one, you know, there's one group of characters we're following through and we're kind of on their journey. And the other ones get away from that. They they split the characters mm, yeah. up. They go all over the galaxy and do different things. And Yeah, and um, this movie they split up at the end, but for most of the movie, they're together. Yeah. And yeah. I, yeah, I love that. The end, and where they split up at the end, that's um, that's classic, you know, Lucas intercutting. That's Lucas uh, yeah. through and through right there. Exactly. You know, that, that Francis Ford Coppola style cross-cutting of all the totally different things happening, yeah. but they're nonetheless related, you know, yeah. as they're part of the same battle, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That, and I love that. That's great. I mean, so, but okay, so let's, so Jar Jar Binks. So you saw, you, you came in yeah, hot. The get in the room. Yeah, you came in hot let's at the top. The get in the room. With, uh, with the Jar Jar. So, okay, so. You know, I mean, this is a, this is a character people love to hate, and oh, yet yeah. I think you right. know. They did the, the, I don't know if listeners care about the Phantom edit, but I think that's a sign. Uh, you know, uh, fans did a re-edit of the entire movie without this character in it. That's how much they hated him. I've never heard of that happening in any other movie. Yeah, that's, yeah, I don't think that's ever happened before. So okay, so people hated it. Yeah. Uh, where do you stand on Jar Jar? Like. Do you want to defend Jar Jar? Um, I think the Gungans are absolutely brilliant, and the plot line involving Jar Jar is absolutely brilliant. Uh, he's a really interesting character. Um, he is, however, executed in a way that is really dumb and annoying. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I, the one w- here's one way I sometimes like to think about it. Um, uh, the Gungans are in many ways similar to the Ewoks. Uh, mm-hmm. They're similar to the Ewoks in that they're – well, actually, they talk about how the Gungans are low-tech, but I actually think they're pretty high-tech. We can get into that. That's but anyway, true, yeah. they're supposedly low-tech, quote-unquote primitive, kind of an offensive term, but whatever. Uh, it, fictional character that said it, not me. Um, um, and uh, – but they're, anyway, they're kind of, they're kind of like um, politically, economic power-wise, et cetera, et cetera, the underdog. Um, and against all odds – they stand up for themselves pretty effectively. In the Ewoks case, it's just, it's they win, they beat the Empire. So that's like even more of a victory. Uh, and like, what, you're gonna beat the Empire with some bows and arrows, but they whatever, they're plucky and they do it. Um, a similar narrative with the Gungans. Um, and I think the Gungans are also supposed to be cute in the way that the Ewoks actually were cute. Uh, but the Gungans are just sort of like, they're slimy. <laughs> like kids TV, you wanna turn the TV off when the kids TV comes on, kind of like that. Um, 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 another big difference, I think, is that um, uh, the Ewoks talk in a made-up language, a language that was made up by linguists, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Um, uh, but um, um, it it just really changes the dynamic of the Ewoks versus the Gungans, where the Gungans speak um, in a dialect of English, which is somehow much less interesting than Yoda's very interesting dialect of English. Uh, side note about Yoda, I just want to mention, uh, Yoda speaks in, um, I believe it's... Uh, um, Object, subject, verb uh, order. I might be misremembering that. It's either I should have looked this up before doing the podcast. Anyway, it's either OVS or OSV. But anyway, uh, the point is that Yoda's syntactic word order is typologically the rarest syntactic word order in human languages, ah. and they specifically went for that for his English. Um, um, and so anyway, it's going to speak a dialect of English, but there's nothing really that kind of uh, um, remarkable about it, memorable about it, like um, uh, screen charismatic about it the way there is with Yoda. Um, and um, uh, so there's just like all these little details of the way they're executed yeah. uh, that makes them uh, annoying and kind of out of place. And just like the, all the, like the humor doesn't land um, in the way it's supposed to. Yeah. Uh, that like the, the part where it, whatever Jar Jar gets into a fight with Sebulba, it really should be a lot funnier than it is. It's supposed to be slapstick, uh, but it just it, like it, I, even I don't find it funny, and I adore this movie. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I think here, if I was going to defend yeah. a part of the Gungans, I guess in the battle, yeah. the mm-hmm. um, the part where I I don't know who it's like Jar Jar's friend, I guess, who's like the he's like the second in command to Bosnas. Yes, he's a fascinating character. I forget his name now. Okay. I'm a bad Star Wars fan, but, but anyway, he's that great. character kind of is cool. I like that guy, and I like yeah. his interactions with Jar Jar. They they kind of have some. Fun, you know, they're kind of like helping each other on the battlefield and stuff. Shaja, using the boomer. Right? He said, don't have a boomer. Here, take him this one. He starts off angry at Jar Jar because Jar Jar is banished, but they make they make buddies. They're really good buddies, in the, you know, in the battle. They kind yeah, of like they, find their friendship again. And I like that. I, I really do like that about it. I also let's talk a little bit about their tech because you, you mentioned it. I mean, the the Gungans like have these cool shields. So already that's that's kick ass. Like they can repel blasters. That's awesome. But then they have these energy balls or something. Boomas, they call them. Okay. Yeah. And then they seem to just have the boomba. They just meets half of the boomba. Yeah, <laughs> they, oh, no. they they just they throw them, and then I think are they effectively like EMPs? They, they pretty much like dissolve slash electrocute the droids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the, and the big ones you dissolve slash electrocute the tanks. Yeah, it's um, kind of like. And the, they also, I mean, another, yeah. another thing I, I've never seen anybody point this out, but I think it's absolutely incredible about the Gungans' technology is when they first swim there. Uh, that you know, the two Jedi and Jar Jar swim into the Gungan, uh, whatever it is, City Hall Palace, blah blah blah. Uh, they go through this little like membrane, yeah, that separates the water, and the inside of there, there's air, and so that's quite a feat. A, a membrane you can walk through to keep the water out. That's incredible. I mean, there's got to be a lot of water pressure in there, right? But then also, when they go through the membrane, they're dry. It dries them off. <laughs> <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> I didn't notice that. So That's they're amazing. wet in the water, and then they're dry when they go through the thing. <laughs> How did the gun go? I love I that. The engineer that invented that. <laughs> they like interview him on my podcast. Or yeah, her. that is amazing. Uh, yeah, that is great. Yeah. I mean, I can I can imagine that um, Liam Neeson and um, Ewan McGregor were like, "We're not being wet for this whole fucking scene." So that <laughs> invented technology that dries us off. Right. Uh, that's Liam incredible. Neeson's like, "Do you yeah. know how long it takes to dry this hair?" <laughs> um, that is a great pull. I did not notice that, but that is perfect. Yeah. Uh, so the okay, the Gungans are cool. I mean, the, so Jar Jar though. I mean, culturally, the hate for Jar Jar was unbelievable and um oh you know, my god I, I well i wasn't like starting a jar jar hate site but i didn't like jar jar and it was very fashionable to hate jar jar um did, did oh, you sure. know did yeah. you know like what happened to this day i mean oh yeah, yeah to, you're I, totally I mean, less so for people who watch this movie as a kid yeah they're kind of like whatever i i'm a kid i like stupid things this is stupid it's great but um <laughs> um but yeah people my age yeah uh and older um you you say the word jar jar and they're like oh my god well, here, stop reminding me about that movie. Here's what I, here's what I think <laughs> is, is yeah. kind of intriguing about it. So, so Ahmed Best, who played Jar Jar, apparently, according to him, the the voice, like, first of all, this was not. I may have this information wrong, but apparently, it was not supposed to be a speaking role. But Ahmed Best kind of lobbied to have. He had the voice that he apparently would do with his nieces and nephews to like entertain them and he was a he was a primary he was hired to just phys- embody the physicality of jar jar because he was a performer in stomp like he was a dancer uh, and but then mm-hmm, he was yeah. he had this voice and he was kind of like you know i don't know and so i'm not sure how much to believe that like he made this 
you know his his own character. But here's the interesting thing: he this that's char- a really stupid trivia. Yeah, I know this, but this character, I think people are annoyed by him, and then they want to. They can't just be annoyed by him. So they have to be like, I'm offended by this character. So this mm-hmm. is minstrel. Yeah. This is a minstrel character. And, you know, so it's morally wrong. But I think if if it's right, though, that Best, who's a black man, did this voice for his nieces and nephews as just, you know, like a, a thing to do. And he wasn't like directed to do this by George Lucas, you know, channeling his you know, inner minstrel Tom, um, you know, it, it, I think it is, it is less offensive. He, he, it's a choice being made by the actor uh, to, to do that. And, you know, and I think perhaps the people who are, you know, making some of these points, many of which are just, are just white guys like us who are mad at the character. Um, you know, maybe that's just a form of us rationalizing our dislike of this character who mm-hmm. may not actually you know, there's a lot of stuff in this movie which could be racially offensive, and maybe this is too. But you know, I do wonder if if that's you know being driven by just general animosity to the character, partly because the character is just clunky and a bit awkward and doesn't totally work. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, if that's the case, um, that could also possibly – I hadn't heard this bit of trivia before, but mm. that could also possibly explain why Jar Jar's English feels a little bit less um, – Architected by linguists than, for example, Yoda's English, yeah. uh, which we talked about earlier. Yeah. Part of this was I wanted to read up on Ahmed Best. So I read, uh, I think it was a Guardian piece, um, uh, uh, which so his, he, his story is actually kind of sad. I mean, after this movie comes out, in the immediate aftermath of the movie, the hate for the character is unbelievable. And then he has to go film two more movies as Jar Jar. And, you know, he said he was at, it was like the lowest point of his He's life. He's getting like, somebody like leaked was, his phone number. He's getting death threats. So he he oh, contemplated, man. he came very close to committing suicide. Um, like he Ugh. was on the Brooklyn Bridge about to jump in. And uh, this is, it's, this was documented in a, in a podcast, I guess, but I just read it in this article. You know, and, and when the gust of wind blew by and he almost fell and grabbed, that was when he realized he didn't want to die. So he came that close to, to, you know, this really ruined his life. And, um, you know, and I think how sad because, you know, this character was, I think, by Lucas's lights, positioned to be the next R2-D2 kind of Ewok type guy, like sidekick. Exactly, yes. And then he gets less and less. R2-D2 slash Chewbacca slash 3PO. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, but he, over the course of the prequels, because of the hate. Yeah, he was written out of the second two. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a silly attempt to appease fans. Yeah. Lucas should have known that nothing he was going to do would appease fans and he should have just followed his heart. It would have been kind of interesting. I mean, Jar Jar does become the senator for Naboo, which is kind of ridiculous. I love it, though. But, right. you know, he's, like, right. addressing the, the the Senate at one point. Yeah, he kind of, like, he kind of, um, right, he kind of, it's almost like Jar Jar was thrown this goodie. Yeah. Uh, Jar Jar, the fictional character, was thrown this goodie as an apology for the fact that he's not really going to be the character anymore. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Um, but anyway, I think it's, you know, th- that's a, a kind of sad mark of this movie and its legacy partly because this was one of the first times we experience in our in you know popular culture toxic fandom um yes because this is really a thing that people are really emotionally invested and the internet has has become uh, a thing possibly including some people in this room i'm in yeah and um you know and uh, yeah that can lead to um yeah that can can lead to uh um online bullying and emotional brutality Yep. Yeah. And then the other casualty of this is Jake Lloyd, who, 
you know, that's the other thing, which is like, he is in an impossible situation. So Jake Lodi plays Anakin Skywalker um, because he's, what, eight or something when he's filming this? And yeah, I forget exactly how old he is. Uh, I, I my, In my mind, he's six, but I haven't Maybe I haven't he's six. That. Yeah, he's um, really young. Oh, he's so little. I know, he's incredible. And, and he starred in another movie, I don't know if you've seen it, by Nick Cassavetes called Unhook the Stars. I have a couple not. years before Phantom Menace. Um, and he's brilliant in that. Um, uh, and so, uh, yeah, him in this movie is, I think, yet another example. This is throughout the prequels of Lucas casting, I mean, arguably some of the best actors in Hollywood who just don't know what to do with the roles. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think he's an example of that. Yeah, I think I think he is really in a – well, he's in an incredibly difficult spot because he – I mean, it didn't matter who you cast in What this kid role. can play Darth Vader? I Jesus. know, right? <gasps> and, and then, you know, he has to say some – Pretty ridiculous lines. I mean, what were some of the lines? Are you an angel? Yeah, yeah, you're an angel. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> These are yeah, yeah, yeah. really Lucas hard. Sort lines. of turn down the yeah, turn turn down the dial on those ridiculous romantic, yeah, whatever the come on lines in this movie compared to the other two goes hog wild with them in the other two. Yeah, but yeah, yeah are you an angel is a great example of yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about the originals, which he didn't did. Lucas like co-wrote and didn't even write all of the. The originals, right? I mean, Kasdan was involved. Am I? Um, uh, he wrote all of them. I he think. wrote all of them. Yes. Okay, but his okay. wife was a big part of editing these. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I think I think there are yeah, also yeah. some insane lines in the original movies, but yes. I think you, what you need yes. is like Harrison Ford. When you have a movie star, they yeah. can say these lines and make it charismatic. And I don't, you Absolutely. know, I don't love Harrison Ford, but like. He, you know, it's a movie star. He he is a fucking movie star, and he is an incredible Han Solo. Yeah. You know, and I think I think personally, Liam Neeson's doing pretty good as Qui Gon. I think he's got the right. I think he's got enough movie star juice to get him through this. But like, I mean, I think Natalie Portman's a, tra- a terrific actress, and she's not. I don't think she's great in this movie, and I don't think it's. Her oh, sorry, fault. who who was that you said? Natalie okay. Portman. Oh, Natalie Portman. Yeah. Right, just, and also Natalie Portman is uh, is sneak replaced by Kara Knightley. Now that I don't yeah. know if we want to go down that road, <laughs> but that is one of the literally one of the absolutely most incredible things about this movie is that Kara Knightley is pretending to be Natalie Portman for the whole damn movie. So yeah, cool. she fooled me for like years, for years. <laughs> I had no idea that was Kara Knightley. Uh, but um, oh my god, because it, it's so weird. She doesn't actually look like Natalie Portman, but they get her in that makeup. Yeah, and in the makeup, they can make her look. Indistinguishable. Yeah. Natalie Portman. The only Absolutely thing that's stunning. the giveaway for me is Natalie Portman's got really distinctive eyebrow shape. Um, so mm-hmm. that was the only, I mean, Ed, but yeah, especially because she also mm. has the Queen Amidala, like puts on a voice when she is the queen. <laughs> um, and so right. Karen Knightley can Which do the same Which is their way voice. I think of like, because Karen Knightley can't do an American accent. She's sort of botching it. I think that was the narrative pretext for that. Oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, I was like laughing to myself that I forgot that Padme has like basically like a Batman voice. And then Natalie Portman tries to imitate Karen Knightley when she's got the makeup <laughs> on and yes. stuff. Yes. Well, you know, yeah. just, just to defend Natalie Portman slightly in this movie, I actually think this is the best she is in the prequel trilogy. Perhaps. I mean, I don't think she's bad um, in this. I just think like, I know she can be great and I don't think she's I great think, yeah. in this. I mean, as she is like, Epic of all time in uh, the professional, I would argue her first starring mm-hmm. role. Yeah, uh, like that's one of that's for the ages. Yeah, um, and what she does, what she can in these movies, but yeah, it's, <laughs> no, totally, it's yeah, um, it's it's not her best performance by any means, but I, I think she's solid in the in this in this one and in in the later ones. I mean, again, the writing is contributing to this. Well, but and she has he, no chemistry no with chemistry Hayden, Christensen, Hayden Christensen, so zero chemistry ha- whatsoever. Yes, yes, and uh, this movie which, sort I mean, of asks. It's kind of common in Hollywood. If, I'm sorry. 
Well, I was just saying this movie's kind of ha- asking her to not only have chemistry with Jake Lloyd for who maybe like it's his acting, her acting. It's just also having chemistry with the child, which is like a funky. That's funky. It's oh, a yeah. funky I re- vibe. actually really like the way Lucas did that in this movie. Uh, <laughs> like I so because uh, like there's it, you know. It's a little bit – it's risky, right, to yeah. like start a romance between a little boy and an adult mm-hmm. or whatever. She's 16. Yeah, well, let's call her an adult. Um, in this story, she's 16. Um, um, but I think he handles it like fairly gracefully. It's like I, I didn't find it particularly creepy the way it's done. It reminded me a little bit uh, actually of the insane um, you know, Turning Point Twilight where uh, the you – know, uh, what's his name is in love with the baby. Uh, <laughs> um <laughs> J- um, yeah, uh, it, un- uh, what is his name? Uncle. Are you thinking of Uncle Joe? Uncle Joe. What's his? What's the character's name? <laughs> Jacob. Jacob. Uncle Jacob. Yeah, Jacob. Thank yeah. you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and you know and uh, anyway, they do it in that movie. Uh, it, somehow they managed to make it not creepy in that movie. And I think um, you know it's um, you know they leave it at like he he really likes her. Uh, he, and he and she finds him intriguing, and she thinks he's a sweet little boy, and he gives her the charm. Uh, and it's sort of laying the groundwork for romance, but they're but they're obviously the, not the right age for it yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't. I think it's kind of hard to nail that, um, you know, uh, in, a, in a way to make it sort of tasteful and yeah. kind of work narratively. It's well, yeah, maybe one of the f- few things in this movie where all the little you know all the little things that could go wrong aren't going wrong. Mm. Yeah, it's like right on the edge of yeah. Partly because it's so de sexualized and everything so it's it's sort of like okay but um i do think though it's incredibly risky having your anakin skywalker starting with a six-year-old anakin skywalker that is just in so many ways a risky move one because um you got to get a kid that can pull this off and i i i think you know all you know all praise to jake lloyd for what he did i think it's very difficult he's in an impossible situation but two i think you know, I I, I think so, I can't remember who said this, but I heard it somewhere on a podcast where they made the joke of like, I love Darth Vader. He's the baddest dude. You know what I don't want to see? Darth Vader when he's in diapers. You know, like Patton Oswalt has <laughs> Patton Oswalt. Patton okay. Oswalt a whole bit <laughs> yeah. about how frustrating the prequels are. Yeah. For and this. I think yeah. that's right. I, think, I mean, it's anyway. I think it's interesting that both he and Natalie Portman did what I would consider to be the role where they really popped as children before this movie. That is interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's pro- uh, it's probably why they're in this movie, right? Is that they they're caught, yeah. they're good, you know, child actors that have gravitas, and so I was thinking, okay, let let's let's slot them in here, and then it just kind of doesn't work. But I, I, you know, if he had done, I think this is one thing where the the sequel trilogies are better. Um, the bad guy in in the sequel trilogy is Kylo Ren who's a moody teenager, basically. I mean, I know Adam Driver's older than that at this point, but like, that's what- No, he totally is, yeah. He should have been- You're, you're waiting for him to be like, mom! Exactly. Oh, that's <laughs> basically is saying that, what right? he needed to be, Anakin needed to be, and Hayden Christensen can't do it, and Jake Lloyd is too young, and, and I feel like, you know, if that was the thing, I think that would have been, it would have at least made a lot of sense. Um, and it, for me, I think- this is the hardest part about the movie for me is, is just, I'm just looking at poor Jake Lloyd and I'm like, I'm simultaneously feeling pity for him and I'm cringing and I find it, that's why I can't like full-throatedly endorse this movie is because I'm like, these parts, the parts you said at the top, Matt, where you're just like, I just don't even mind that anymore. I've seen it so many times. Watching it, you know, last night or whenever we watched it, I was like, ah, oh, this is just, I needed less of this. <laughs> I think it would have been a little weird maybe though to have um, Hayden Christensen – I mean he is kind of like an angsty teenager. Um, but um, part of 
what's so weird about Hayden Christensen. I don't want to focus too much on the, not this movie, but like part of what's so weird about where Anakin goes is he does, he, he um, yeah, he is this like um, kind of creepy stalker teenager yeah. type. Um, and like, that's clearly bad, but like, it's so different from the way Vader's bad. Ba- Vader is like cool, collected. He's like, let them go. We will catch them later. You know, strategic, yeah. quiet, you know what? He's going to, he'll, 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 he'll fling, he'll force fling some stuff at you if you come at him. But like, you know, he's, he like, he achieves his victories through strategy and keeping his cool uh, and just being really sinister and subtle. And it's like the opposite of Hayden Christensen. So I, I, the way Hayden Christensen does it, where he's just like screeching all the time, <laughs> like raging all the time. Uh, and so, um, and then when he actually does become Darth Vader in the third movie, it's just like, is this a, like a, a time warp? Yeah. Like what, how did he become this other character? Yeah. Um, it, it's it's incongruous, and I think that's the thing. Like I, I, this is not a perfect movie. I think there's lots to recommend it, but I think part of that incongruity, and I, I hear your defense in terms of like he's, you know, this is the hero, and then there's the turn. But I kind of feel like I needed some. Did you want to see the dark him. and light fighting a little bit from a little, the beginning? Exactly. I want to see a little bit of. Exactly. Yeah. Or like a or a drive for power, maybe yeah. more than he just selflessly helps them. Yeah. You know. Well, well. Okay. Although I will say this. Although I will say this because they, I think that's partly what draws Qui Gon to him. That's a, another kind of unexplained thing. Is like, why is Qui Gon so into this kid? And I think it is because he sees he's like, I mean, this guy's just like really benevolent. But I also think the movie gives you enough to think that the kid is just horny for Padme. You know, he sees Padme and he's like, we got to help them, mom. And his mom's like, wow, really? And he's like, no, mom, for real. We got to. You're, like, <laughs> you're like, wait a second. Like, have you never seen a girl before? I know it's Tatooine, but anyway. <laughs> the concept of like, whatever, um, giving into the dark side, you know, was always, you start off good and then, but then, you know, um, uh, for, for, for good, all, almost always motivated by good reasons. Yeah. Uh, your kind of relatable fear drives you down this path. Um, And I mean, so in Return of the Jedi, it's with um, 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 Luke being afraid that uh, Vader is going to hurt Leia, that it ultimately makes him rage out. Um, But I don't know that I I, like um, any of the movies ever really kind of show you how that psychological transition works. How does this person turn into the evil person and like, and you know, be in a continuous way such that they are still identifiable as this earlier person, because that's also required for Vader to redeem himself yeah. at the end of Return of the Jedi yeah. and bring balance to the force, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I, I actually think the moment in the entire Star Wars sort of whatever, nine part thing, um, that is the most emotionally Plus infinite TV shows. Yeah, <laughs> uh, ignore. Um, but in the nine movies, I think the moment that is the most um, emotionally um, powerful for me in in regards exactly to this thing, where you sort of see the turn happen and you understand it, and it's communicated. I think totally visually is the moment in Return of the Jedi where Vader is watching Luke be killed by the by the emperor mm. and he you see it's just a slight turn of his head and you can and the music changes and you can't see his face can't it's even just see his this face plastic whatever it's like the side of a car yeah and somehow just looking at these like little shiny plastic uh you feel his, his you feel hurt it. you know yeah that's amazing the way that i think done. that is yeah. i think it's actually i think it's the 
the the best moment in the entire and everything. And actually, just I'll give it away right now. That's why Return of the Jedi is my favorite Star Wars movie. Is because I actually think emotionally the that that is the highest moment of the of the franchise. And um, you know, you get it, it's set up because Luke's this whole time been like he's had these conversations with Vader over the course of the film. Where he said, like, you and know, he keeps saying, I feel good in him. You're like, good. what are you talking about? Yeah. I have not seen any good in any of these movies. What, like, <laughs> it, 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 so it's also kind of surprising when that happens. Yeah. When but Vader it, turns around and actually kills the it's Emperor. His, it's his son's faith in him that redeems him, you know? And I love that whole yeah, idea yeah, yeah. that, like, kind of you're, self fulfilling, you know, William James kind of a thing happening, right? Self fulfilling sure, uh, belief. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's somebody showed faith in me. I'm worth, like, you know, like I, I'm actually a yeah, good right. Person. Let me live up to that. Exactly. I think it's absolutely incredible. I think it's like the, for me, you know, obviously we're dealing in very broad emotional beats here, but like that to me is the is is the high point. And I think the problem is with these the, the these turns. I think he's trying to do it in Attack of the Clones and Return of the Sith, um, uh, but it's it's just not Return of the Sith. Whatever the fucking last. What's the third one called? Revenge of the Sith. Revenge, Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, in these movies, he's trying to do the inverse of that, and it none of it works emotionally for me. Um, and I think, you know, I think that's a fault of those movies. But um, I think I think that's partly why, um, you know, I I kind of like this movie, but just as like a almost like a curio on its own. Like I kind of enjoy watching it, and I don't need to watch the other two. I feel no inclination to watch the other two. But of the prequel ones, I kind of I like enjoy watching this, and I would watch it as a standalone movie. And I I think that's kind of actually cool because a lot of times that's hard to accomplish in the first of a of a three part thing. That's just setting up. It's really just set up. Um, I think Star Wars was kind of like that too. Yeah, the, um, because, New like, Hope. partially because they didn't know they're going to get to make more movies. Yeah. It had always been envisioned as well at various points. Sometimes a trilogy, sometimes a nonology. Uh, but it was supposed to. That was just supposed to be the beginning. Yeah. But of course, everyone making the movie thought it was going to bomb, so they also tried to make it a self-contained thing. Yeah, and yeah, you get a kind of. I think you get an echo of that in the Phantom Menace as well. I, they did know they were going to make the other two, but nonetheless, I think that just happened again for some reason. Mm-hmm. Is there so Matt? So I I just gave up my favorite of the nine movies i mean what's your what's your favorite do you have a ranking ranking well um i guess i'll come out as a hater of the sequels um (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah very cranky about the sequels i still watch them even the star wars media i don't like i still watch you know because um you know as a fan i think it's uh it's 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 necessary to understand the subsequent star wars media that's going to come uh but they but they do they do pain me The, the sequels do pain me um uh, yeah, my favorite, uh, I'm just going to give a boring answer. I think this is almost everybody's answer, Empire Strikes Back. Um, um, Empire Strikes Back is interesting because um, it kind of leaves you hanging. Um, uh, like It's in the middle of like a really complicated um, plot arc and nothing's resolved. Um, that said, uh, I think all the, um, all the little – all the little millions of microscopic Lucas stylistic widgets that we've been talking about that don't land uh, or, you know, land unevenly in the prequels uh, pretty much land perfectly in that movie. Uh, I think he just had this sort of, um, uh, he had real rapport with uh, the director of Kirshner, um, uh who uh, is kind of an oddball director, not like super, he's not a super big time director, but um, yeah, anyway, outsourcing some of the little micro decisions about, 
you know, how to have uh, the details of this performance in this scene and the details of like the uh, the the um, the editing and, the, you know, in this scene and so forth, outsourcing some of that onto another person while um, uh, uh, giving himself a little more room to do what he loves to do, which is build worlds with really complicated, grand society level political narratives and intrigue, uh, I think uh, comes together perfectly in that movie. Um uh, it's also from a uh, sort of uh, you know mise en scène, camera choreography, um, et cetera, et cetera, for like film nerds, blah 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 blah. Perspective, um, I think, uh, the, the kind of the most uh, interesting, um, uh, sort of stylistically. Uh, it's, I think it's the most like um, a, you know studio era classical Hollywood movie uh, that way of the of the of the original trilogy. Um, they introduce Yoda. Uh, yeah, there's there's really a lot of great stuff happening. It's a the good movie. Back. Yeah, it's um, a great movie. But where so of the prequels, uh, so Phantom Menace is number one, and then but here's here's yeah. this follow up question. So I, I yeah does does Phantom Menace beat any of the original trilogy for you? Um, that's a tough one. I mean, it doesn't beat Empire, I guess, but does it beat no. Return of the Jedi or New Hope? I think no, but it beats all but, the sequel trilogy. Yeah, okay. th- this is a tough one for me because. I don't know. Sometimes, I mean, I love them all so much. It's hard to, you know, the, the original six, that is. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it's kind of hard to pick a favorite. Uh, uh, but uh, I think I think the first three are kind of better as movies. But there is also some of what you're talking about that I have a real soft spot for. Whack, there's a lot of wacky experimentation in this movie mm-hmm. that the first three don't do that I just adore. Um, and, um, and there's something about enhancing all the old stuff with all the new stuff that gets me so excited. I just get this like comfort feeling watching it. Um, yeah. So I guess I maybe at some times and on some days I'm like maybe even more excited to watch this than one of the originals, but I don't know. It's kind of hard to compare. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Lord, do you, do you like any of the Star Wars movies? (laughs) (laughs) At all. Any scene in any of the Star Wars movies? Any, any I have seconds of any seen of all the Star Wars. I mean, Laura's yeah, I have. Forster. But. I did not like Star Wars before I before I met Justin. And then, you know, it's like not really a choice in this house. You got to love them. And I have come to love them. <laughs> I have. Before I met Justin, I never saw Revenge of the Sith. And I thought I could go my whole life without seeing that movie. But I was wrong. I was well, wrong. Well, we watched them because we watched them to get ready for before, the before the, before the 2015 sequels. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, now that we've rewatched them in, in various iterations, I like I well, I'm like with you, Justin. I like um, Return of the Jedi. Look, I if you lived in this household, Matt, you would also like Return of Jedi. I just <laughs> I'm constantly hyping it up. I um, might. I mean, Jabba I the like Hut. Jabba, I love yeah, the Jabba, Jabba stuff. The Hutt, extraordinary Ewoks, extraordinary. Yeah. I love Ewoks. Yeah. I love Ewoks so much. I know they were like, I mean, in a much less, you know, much less. Um, Charged way. charge way they were kind of the job the 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 job is that they or the sorry they um gungans gungans of their day thank yeah. you um but I freaking love those guys and I like their interaction with our t- with uh, C three PO I think it's funny oh I like God. the job of palace he, stuff yeah, right where Luke <laughs> tricks them into thinking he's a god by making him float so they won't eat them <laughs> I love scene, all of it right? I love everything about it um yeah <laughs> they and, have, uh, I like their music. I I'm a big too. fan of oh, yeah. music. We, we, Which we he got rid of in the new versions. I know. But, I know. You know we used to can, sing it to our son a, all know, the time. Get yourself a uh, bargain bin CD of Nyub Nyub. I highly recommend it. <laughs> yeah, Yub is the best. I like that one. He's got his, he's like whipping his thing around his head and then he knocks himself in the face. I love the Ewoks. Oh, I'm all, yeah. 
Right, and that's the kind of stuff they try to do with Jar Jar, right? With these flinging the I know the it just around, doesn't yeah, quite. Yeah. I don't know why, but um, it's not awesome the way Ewoks are. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like the the thing about I think the thing that really reveals me is not a true Star Wars fan is that um, in Empire I don't love the Dagobah stuff. Oh yeah, Laura, Laura thinks it really grinds to a halt. I really don't like the Dagobah mm, stuff. And I'm also a little licked out by the Han Leia of it and like the like negging mean way that he likes he flirts with her. I I don't love it. And there's a lot of it in, in that. And it's I that, think like, that's the yeah, most gender politics are super weird. Yeah. And yeah. And that the, happens. The and I think like by the third movie, we're so all like divided up and, you know, and Leia in that stupid goddamn outfit. I mean, Carrie Fisher is pretty enraged <laughs> that he put her in that even during the shoot. Uh, and I don't think, we, do, I don't know, maybe the Jabba Palace were, yeah. outfit. Yeah. 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 I mean, Can I say? It was, like, was Jabba. The, why are you, what does this contribute to anything? I, well, Jabba's gross. That's, I guess, what we're supposed yeah. to, it's, it's just Jabba's yeah. choice is what it is. Can we talk quickly about, speaking of costumes, yes. how dope the costumes are in this movie, specifically oh, how my God. Padme yes. has like 10 looks and they're all amazing. All right, break it down. Let's hear your, <laughs> I mean, let's hear it. Give us a breakdown <laughs> of the many Padme looks. I mean, I, I don't think, I couldn't even like use the words to describe them. There are, listen, if you need to find tumblers with every single okay. photo of every outfit, I think there's, hold on, let me, let me break, I think there's, break it down. But the, many I think of them, they were trying to find a worthy successor I think there's to Leia's earmuffs with yes. Padme's outfits. And they and they did it. They oh, they it totally yeah. did it. Yeah. yeah. And I think at looking at their her hairdos in this one versus the the next two prequels, they kind of take it down a notch. Actually, no, she totally. has much more natural hair in yeah. the second. Lame. I like how insane her looks are in this. Um, <laughs> she's I think really there's... insane though when she's introduced in Attack of the Clones. Uh, she has almost kind of like uh, I can't even tell if it's her hair. Hmm. It's like this fuzzy stuff that goes back. Anyway, um, it's a, it's quite an it's quite a it's quite a striking outfit. Yeah, I, according to this, there's nine looks that okay. she's got, like including when she's Queen Amidala and when she's just she's Padme. Yeah. But mm -hmm. like they call and oh, this wait, one, are they count, are they counting Cara Knightley? And I guess so. Yeah. Yes, they are. They are. Yes. Yeah, and um, but like the, they call this the space is cold dress, but it's it's the handmaiden outfits, the flame, hmm. the orange and red handmaiden outfit that have like a little visor yes <laughs> oh, on yeah, top great. one of them Sophia Coppola by the way which is fun oh really yeah. <laughs> yeah um yeah I just I love the first one that we see her in mostly we see it from the top and that's when she's got like the sort of like the hair that's almost like making an arch around her mm -hmm. face but not until we see her later in a long shot do you realize that she has like light up orbs that are all around her skirt <laughs> That are lit up. It's like she's constantly going to the Met Gala. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> Her outfit at the when she does the the no confidence vote is also yeah. incredible. Her hair is like making an it makes like an M with her with her body. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like she has the, the largest <laughs> she's got like horns. She's basically. got like horns. Yeah, yeah, she's got like ram horns out of hair extraordinary i love these out i think the costumes are so great yeah. in this movie and all the naboo stuff i think especially including these costumes you can sort of see the influence from like 50 different like actual um um traditional uh, uh architecture slash fashion Cultures, styles from yeah. around the human world but then the way they're combined together is so like insane mm -hmm. that it, it really turns into more than the sum of its parts i think um, and it's very similar to the way I think they transform, you know, the Royal uh, Palace of Naples, I think it is, mm -hmm. uh, into this thing that sort of looks 
European slash Italian slash Mediterranean, and sort of looks like crazy alien stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, even though the, the a lot of the base photographic elements are just Italy, but then they just like they put all this other random stuff into it that makes it like space Italy. Yeah, but that and is something so about true for her outfits, right? Yeah. yeah, and that is something about this movie because it was shot more on locations and on film, and then when he adds in the other elements, it does have this kind of like texture and reality yeah. that when we get more just like Cloud City stuff, or not really, it's I mean it's Corsican, right? But like a lot of it is just feels very CG environment yeah. going forward. Yeah, and that was a, a like a different uh, approach to filmmaking that he was sort of experimenting with in the second two prequels, um, where he was like, you know what? Let's just film like as much as possible against a green screen. And that way we can decide what the scene is later in post. Um, and so he's like, um, yeah, like even figuring out like what other stuff besides the characters is there like later, um, uh, which I mean, in principle, right? Like in the in the hands of somebody who is really skilled in improvisation, you know, what if Mike Lee were to like, <laughs> you know, figure a CG scene out or a green screen scene out in post or whatever, like it might come out different. Um but uh, that does, yeah, it, it it makes this one feel very unique. It does. Um, all the location, all yeah. location shooting. And I think, well, the other aspect of it is that when you're on a green screen, you can only have the characters move so far in actual physical space before you have to cut. So you, you, you really, you have no sense of scope because the characters are only ever moving a little bit and then you're cutting and you're trying to fill it all in. And you, your mind kind of sees like that is this fake because, you know, they're, you never actually see them like in the environment itself. But here, when they're in these palaces and they're running around shooting each other, you get a real sense of the scope of the size of everything. And it, it does feel massive. E you know, even actually... The um the lightsaber battle, which I I want to I want to come to next is is yeah we got to talk about Darth Maul. Got to talk about Maul. That's gotta right. Talk about Darth Maul. Uh, but that battle, which takes place in uh, you know a, a CG augmented environment, but nonetheless, there's quite a bit of space for them to move around in, and um, it just feels and it's the style of uh you know whatever part of a ship that you see uh first in uh episode. For when they sabotage the Death Star, and then again in Empire Strikes Back yep. when Darth Vader and Luke fight, uh, it, hark it harks back to that. Yep, totally. Okay, so Darth Maul. So uh, is I mean, is he the coolest villain besides Darth Vader? Uh, in my opinion, yeah, I think he's one of the. I think he's one of those badass villains. Uh, really, in any movie, but like yeah. certainly in the Star Wars movies. I mean, obviously Vader takes the cake. Yeah, but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Maul's incredible. I mean, like every time I watch the movie, he's like more badass than the last time I watched it. Like he's like coming at Anakin in this like speeder motorcycle thing. And then he like tries to hit Anakin with the speeder while jumping off it. And then he's in the middle of a flip. He turns the lightsaber on in the middle of the flip, then takes a whack at Qui-Gon before even landing. <laughs> it's awesome. Totally badass. Oh, it is. I mean, that part is, I also, I'm every, every time I'm struck by how quickly, like he's like, He's coming and then he's like Anakin down and then he, he's already off the thing. Sabers are out. It's just like it's happened so fast. It's it's really I think it's really quite thrilling. Um, but then the final battle is I think this is the best lightsaber yes. battle ever, right? This Absolutely is best yeah. lightsaber battle. Period. Yeah, I would say yeah, um, yeah. And they choreographed a um, a similarly impressive apparently lightsaber battle for uh, Episode Three. Mm. Then the day of the shoot, Lucas is like, you know, what? we're not doing that. Here, uh, Ian McDermott, uh, why don't you try using a sword for the first time in your life? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, <laughs> which is why that scene is complete nonsense. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. You know, it's like close-ups of people not being able to use a sword, then cutaways to stunt doubles, then close-ups of people not being able to use a sword, et cetera, oh, no. et cetera. Yikes. Oh, <laughs> um, 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. It's the only time. Um, I don't know. You get the sense with Lucas that he uh, sort of um, he's a little, little bit of ADD. He's like so he's interested in all these different things, and, and at certain times, some things become the priority, and other things get deprioritized. You get the sense that the sword fight. He had just seen um, uh, Ray uh, Ray Park do a martial arts demo at some like. I don't know, movie convention or something. And he was like, it, 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 you get the sense that that was sort of like in the back of his head yeah. and he was excited about the time. Several years later when they're doing the other movies, he's like, now he's excited about a new thing. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. But that's the movie where they have a, like, in a, you know, a legit ass sword fight. Yeah. Um, which, you know. I mean, it looks freaking awesome. I feel like, oh, the yeah. other aspect of it, this time I noticed, um, uh, probably because we were actually watching it on a good sound system, is the sound design also rules in that and yes the num there's a number of times when the lightsabers either hit or when somebody punches another person and you get this crackle of thunder <laughs> and it's so cool like you're just like you just feel like you are watching God's battle, right? Like it's like Zeus versus Poseidon and they're shooting lightning bolts at each other. And like, it really feels epic in a way that these other lightsaber battles felt very much like mortals fighting, which is great too. Like, you know, Darth Vader and Luke in Return of Jedi, I love that battle, but it does feel like two human beings fighting. And this just, you feel like these are like, these are gods who, you know, who are in some, you know, in some, you know, they're one will be defeated, but like you really do feel like no one else could be on this plane with them. Like they're. they're I also on their feel own. like this is the moment where Obi Wan is uh, like the platonic ideal of a Jedi. It's it's it's. And frankly, I I get inspired thinking about it. He sees his master get killed. He's so upset and and outraged. Um, and instead of uh, whatever. Uh, uh, descending into a, a blind, uh, you know, Hayden Christensen, Adam Driver style rage, he focuses and pays attention, and yeah, so he he, fo- he focuses on the fight uh, mm-hmm. to come, and uh, and like sort of um, you know uh, masters these emotions he's having. Uh, then as soon as he wins, he runs back to his master, and then then the grief starts to happen. You're right. Um, mm-hmm. um, I, and that's I think it's it's one of the only moments in all the Star Wars movie I can think of where like this is what Jedi are supposed to do, mm-hmm. uh, and he like. Absolutely, you know, even Yoda doesn't really do it right. And when he fights, uh, what's his face and uh, Dooku, uh, Darth Sidious in the in the episode three. Oh, and and uh, Sidious, yes, sure, yeah, um, yes. No, you're uh, right. So I find that really moving. Yeah, yeah. the way he the way he uh, he he holds it in out of necessity. It's an emergency. Like we got to deal with this guy. Yeah. Before I can let my emotions, you know, uh, uh, take over. Yeah. No, that's a great point. I didn't even think about that, but that seems exactly right. Um, well. That brings us really to the end of the film. I mean, I and then you know, Anakin kind of saves the day and is some sort of haphazard. <laughs> he somehow gets into the ship and then blows it up. Yeah, it's which, super. It's super unexplained and weird. Yeah, like, how because they're like nothing can get past our shields. But yeah, we, we know whatever you know. I guess the idea is that physical objects can can breeze through the shields. But then like. Why aren't they just shooting cannonballs at the thing? Exactly. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I like it's, the idea. It's totally weird. It's kind of like the thing, the, the, the which just happens throughout the Star Wars, where they're like in the Death Star, they're like, it's this impregnable force. But of course, yeah. it has to have a ventilation shaft. And we figured out that, like, <laughs> if you shoot something down the ventilation shaft, it'll blow it up. You know, and they're like, damn yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so maybe it's, it's got to be up to code, even if it's the Empire's, like, planet killing machine. Yeah, exactly. You know, come on. So I think it's. You, just, it won't, we don't want to get dinged by, uh, you know, by the inspector. The, the galactic inspector, that's right. Yeah. Um, but I like the idea that it's just, sometimes it is just random, you know? And sometimes, like, 
it's the thing that no one would think to do, like fly your ship into the hangar or whatever. Yeah. And he does it because by accident. Because by accident. Yeah. Yeah. Or he fires the torpedo by accident. By also by like, accident. Do? Yeah, he, he doesn't even the know what he's doing. Reactor, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. So I think, you know, like there, there is something and that that is in keeping with the spirit of Star Wars. So I forgive it, but it also is kind of it's kind of silly. And I think it was a point many people complained about. But, you know, and then then we return back to the planet. And for some reason, the Jedi Council is on Naboo. They like came to like celebrate, uh, which to me makes no sense because this is like a minor conflict in the outer you know territories but whatever you gotta have a parade yeah they came yeah but that's I interesting like... although if you think about it the um the chancellor did dispatch them at the beginning did dispatch two jedi knights pretty valuable limited resource at the beginning true to naboo to try to deal with this yeah. conflict yeah um although i mean the chancellor's been voted out but then the new chancellor is the naboo guy yeah so maybe that's uh, my, it. Uh, my my take on that is always that they're coming to help um uh, you know, because right, uh, it takes whatever it takes time to get there, and the, the two Jedi that have been there are the people that are there now. But now the re- now the you know uh, the Marines have been sent in, kind of a thing. Yeah, but I don't, but why the council? It'd be like sending like all the generals there. <laughs> like I don't know yeah, why they, why do they have to be there? But anyway, they're there, they're chilling. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's uh, right. It is the council that is kind of <laughs> like what is, why is Yoda there? <laughs> but that's fine. Uh, Yoda's yeah, chilling, yeah. and uh, Master Flow is there. Yeah, Windu's there. Do you have a favorite Jedi yeah. on the Jedi Council? <sighs> that's a great question. I think I'm just going to be boring with it and pick Obi-Wan. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's not always on the council, obviously. Um, there, I mean, that moment I mentioned, I think that really makes him the most epic Jedi. I see. Another thing that makes him the most epic Jedi is basically everything he does in episode four. He's so cool. He's like puckish. He plays with people. He sneaks around. He like messes with stuff. But he's not like he's not as um, – I mean, Qui-Gon, you almost feel like he's a petty criminal. Just like do you Jedi mind tricks to get deals on stuff, <laughs> <laughs> like uh, and so he's not quite work. to that extent. Yeah, he's he's just more sort of a fun kind of puckish, lighthearted, despite everything mm-hmm. that's happened. Yeah, guy in Episode Four, and between those two things, yeah, I think You're I think Obi Wan's kind of the fan. ultimate. All right, I like for that. me, but obviously there's lots of great Jedi though. I mean, I, yeah, it, you know, it's kind of hard, kind of hard to pick. No, it's great. Mace Windows a bit of a dickwad. Um, <laughs> uh. You know, he has his play. He has an important place, but you know, yeah, totally. Famously, a bit of it. Yeah. Totally, he's the best swordsman, <laughs> apparently. But uh, my favorite guy was always Jarl right. Poof, who was the, <laughs> who was the. He has. He's not a named character, but you get if you read the encyclopedia, Yarl you would know. He's the guy who has the. the I don't really, know that Jedi actually. He's got the really long neck and the tiny little head on top. He's just in the background. He's oh, in the is. background. Yeah, he doesn't have any lines. I just always thought that guy was cool, and then I learned when I read the encyclopedia. Is he Kaminoan with a long neck? Yeah, he's got a big that. long neck. I, I don't know what. You is, don't know his species. I don't know his species, but uh, yeah. he. I learned. You know, the Kaminoans are the ones that make the clones. <laughs> no, he's not that. I don't think he's okay, that. Yeah. No, but they have. He has uh, four arms underneath his robes, and I always thought that was kind of cool. Oh, he's got yeah. a huge neck the four and four arms. Mm-hmm, so he, yes. can, he can use two sabers. You know, each yeah, with, super cool. Anyway, I thought that was kind of cool. But then I guess he dies between episode one and episode two. Oh, <laughs> like come on, so he's replaced. That's sad. Yeah. That is sad. <laughs> and of course, they're all killed in episode three. Yeah, also. well, game over. It was just a matter of time. <laughs> oh, <no>. Yeah. <laughs> um, Matt, <laughs> is there anything else you wanted to hit about The Phantom Menace? Hmm. Well, um, it is my um, Sisyphean hope that maybe someone listening to this episode will consider going back to the movie and 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 maybe they'll find something in the movie to appreciate 
uh, in a movie which is universally regarded as thoroughly unappreciable. Um, um, I really think it delivers the goods on uh, a lot of the Lucas magic sort of, uh, which I, you know, I guess I would sort of sum up as like world building where you, you spend years and years and years doing all this creative, like fantasy, you know, um, uh, fictional universe, uh, uh, storyline drafting, and then you include like 1% of it in the movie <laughs> just to give a sense that there's this vast universe that you're only seeing a little part of. Mm-hmm. I think there's no other director uh, who really does that the way Lucas does. Yeah. Uh, it, it gives you the sense that you just got a little glimpse of this like fully worked out, detailed, you know, uh, uh, Leibniz style. Uh, every time you zoom in, you see a, f- a further infinitely complex fractal thing. Um, um um, and, um, um, yeah, the way, sort, the way it sort of fits in to the, um, plot arc of the original trilogy, um, and, uh, elaborates on it, adds new stuff, not always completely coherently, but sort of mostly generally kind of coherently, um, uh, is, uh, I, I think, I think it delivers on that stuff that Star Wars fans are really looking for and got from the original trilogy more than Star Wars fans uh, often realize. And yeah. Uh, yeah, per- perhaps perhaps someone listening to this will uh, go give it a, a different look at stick their fingers in the ears whenever Jar Jar talks and see some <laughs> of the other stuff happening. Excellent. Well put. Well, thanks so much, Matt. And um, uh, tell so tell the folks where they... So the, the podcast that you host is called Elucidations. And... Um, I meant obviously they can be found anywhere where you get podcasts, but like where, what, what social media stuff do you want to plug? Uh, I am fairly active on Twitter, so, uh, please feel free to, um, to at me, uh, with all your questions about, um, and what's the, what's the handle? What's uh, what's your handle? Uh, Oh, right. So at elucidations pod is my Twitter handle. And then uh, the blog for the podcast is located at elucidations.versal, V-E-R-C-E-L, dot app, A-P-P. And that's where um, you can, um, you know, kind of read the show notes for every episode that comes out, uh, in addition to the, you know, subscribing at the usual places. We should say, so the podcast, you, you most episodes are you're, you're interviewing a philosopher often about a specific thing that they have worked on as part of the research, right? Yes. That's the... Yeah, I like to think of it as um, I don't know if uh, this is the way um, everyone listening thinks of it, but I, I like to think of it as um, uh, I'm going to sit down with uh, someone who knows something about some cool topic that maybe you haven't heard of before, and we're going to do kind of a lesson, introductory lesson on that topic in the form of an interview. Perfect. Yeah, it's great. I I mean, I've listened to so many episodes as as I mentioned as we talked about the top. It's one of the first philosophy podcasts, and I mean, I used to listen to it all the time. So and, definitely hit me up if you come to Chicago and uh, come on the show. All right, perfect. Sounds good. Yeah. Um. And uh, thanks so much again, Matt. It was it was really great having you. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And we are at CalsPod on Twitter. You can find us on the web at calspod.wordpress.com, and you can buy a shirt with two cows on it at calspod.threadless.com. In two weeks, we will be talking with Liam Billingham about Starship Troopers. So tune in for that. Thanks. A long, long time ago. In a galaxy far away, Naboo was under an attack. And I thought me and Qui-Gon Jinn could talk the Federation into maybe cutting them a little slack. 
their response, it didn't thrill us. They locked the doors and tried to kill us. We escaped from that gas, the Met Jar Jar and Boss Ness. We took a bongo from the scene and we went to feed to see the queen. We all wound up on tattooing. That's where we found this boy. Oh my, my, this here Anakin guy. Maybe Vader someday later, now he's just a small fry. And he left his home and kissed his mommy goodbye, saying, Soon I'm gonna be a Jedi. Soon I'm gonna be a Jedi.